Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome to the show. This is part two of our very, very long show on the Romanov family. The epic story of the last Tsar and Tsarina. So we're going to just jump right back in. So we're back. And the mourning period for Papa is over. Everyone's been crowned. Now we're going to settle into how it's going to be. And everyone was kind of looking to Alex. Is she going to be a leader of fashion? Mm-hmm. As so many queens were. Right. Oh, oh, were they disappointed. She might have been a leader of fashion in a different country. That's right. She preferred simple lines and pale colors. And the Russian taste, shall we say, ran to excess. The Russian people were very colorful. Architecturally, their buildings were very colorful. Their clothing was very colorful. Lots of different colored jewels, lots of low necklines. There was a ball, and Alexandra was kind of offended by some of the women's dresses, and she sent her maid over to talk to one of the women and say, we do not dress like that in Hess, with a response, well, this is how we dress in Russia. Get used to it. Who are you? Yeah. The hobble skirts came in, mm-hmm. super fashionable, but Alex was very dubious, and instead of jumping into that fad, she had one made for one of her uh, ladies in waiting. And so the lady put it on, and Alex folded her arms and looked, and she said, hmm, I don't know about that. Why don't you run? And then when the lady imagined somebody running with her ankles tied together, and Alex is like, I thought so. We're not going to be wearing that. No, no. So who would? I mean, you couldn't even step up a stair in a no. skirt. You no maybe one. go down. Yeah. <laughs> Alex did have, however, one of the largest collections of jewels in the world, some of which had to be checked out, in fact, and a soldier had to escort it up to her, and she had to sign it out. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was a crown jewel if she wanted to wear it. It was a property of the state. And it was more than people's life was worth to lose it, too. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, definitely. Other jewels came along, and they were much more precious. In relatively quick succession, every two years, three more girls, Olga came first, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia in a row. So there's a series of quotes that I read from assorted people about the progression of how stressed out people were that these girls kept coming. When Olga was born, there was joy. I can hardly believe this is our child. When Tatiana was born, there was a letter from someone politely saying, please forgive me if I was a little disappointed to learn it was a daughter. Maria came. All the gloves were off. The whole of Russia will be disappointed by this news. There's no heir? By the time Anastasia came, one of his relatives from Britain wrote, We've got four sons. I do wish one of them was yours. <laughs> Ouch. In the middle, she had a miscarriage and a false pregnancy. And it was very stressful for Alexandra because there were a lot of people in, nearby in the family who were having all these boy children, and she wasn't having it. And she kind of got a little nutty about the whole thing. She began to seek the advice of uh, increasingly dubious quacks. Yeah, well, the whole Russian Orthodox religion has some mystical elements to it. So it wasn't that much of a stretch. The people were there. Um, At one point, her trying to conceive plan included canonizing a long-dead religious hermit, then bathing naked in a pool by his home, praying for a son. She hauled out the whole her entourage to this place in the woods to do this. 
It was kind of crazy, but within a year, Alexei was born. At last, at long last, a boy, Alexei, was born, and there was great joy in the land for six weeks until it was discovered that baby Alexei, their hope for the dynasty, had hemophilia. It started bleeding out of his navel. And six weeks after the umbilical cord was cut, they tried to make excuses for it. You know, maybe they cut too deep or too whatever. But no, the doctors confirmed the worst. Hemophilia. I think this kind of cracked Alex. It tortured her for the rest of her life. This, I think, is what pushed her full on into mysticism, especially to a steritz or self-proclaimed holy man named Rasputin, who, yes, did have some kind of a good effect on her son's pain and mental state. He could stop the bleeding. But, oh, I wish, I wish you could see this guy. Disreputable looking would be kind. You would move the strap of your purse to the other side if you saw this guy, much less leave your children in his company within a mile of him. He was, he wasn't even uh, associated with the church. He was a self-professed man of God. He was a Siberian peasant. He was a known healer, which is probably, you know, why she gave him the opportunity to get involved with her family. But, ew. He, yeah, I, I just... Was ever descriptive. But, you know what? He charmed people somehow. He charmed her. She talked with him. She took him into her confidence. Yeah, and here's a weird thing, though. The hemophilia was kept as a family secret. So Rasputin's presence was really unexplained. Mm-hmm. Like that movie Meet Joe Black, where death is hanging around and the guy can't explain it. Everybody's so confused. Mm-hmm. What is this hairy-looking, scary, dirty guy who actually was finally convinced to put on a clean shirt? What is he doing here? What role does he have? Was he sleeping with the Tsarina? Was he hypnotizing the Tsar? You know, was he making political decisions? If you leave a kind of hole for people, they'll Mm -hmm. fill it in. Oh, yeah, the gossip chain was going big time when he was on the scene, that's for sure. But he did stop the bleeding. He could do it. He did have some type of power. Now, it's said that maybe it was hypnosis. Maybe he had an ability to hypnotize people. And there is some evidence that hypnotism is effective on stopping the bleeding of hemophiliacs. I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you why. But, yeah. Interesting. This mystery really added to the persecution, yes, I say persecution, that Alex and by extension Nikki had started to feel, really. I mean, it was a bad thing for their reputation, which is already kind of shaky anyway. Yeah, they kind of kept him hidden after a while. They didn't, I think there's only a few pictures with him, but he was there quite a bit with the, with the family, with the kids. The kids adored him. It creeps me out. I, I can't wait for you guys to see the picture. <laughs> okay, so 1905 was a really hard year. I'm going to go really quick through a couple things, but just so you know kind of why everybody fled to the country, here's what happened all in a row in 1905. Russia got spanked by Japan in a short and decisive war. Also, a group of petitioners yelling, God save the Tsar, came in a peaceful demonstration to ask the Tsar, who was in fact not there, for better working conditions, you know, eight-hour day, calm. They were nice enough. They were just a lot of them. And the guards panicked and fired into the crowd and killed or wounded 92 people. Big shock to the country. 
and they began to turn against him. This event was called Bloody Sunday, not the one you two sings about. <laughs> I'm very sad there has to be more than one Bloody Sundays, but this was the year that the Tsar was forced to become a constitutional monarch instead of an absolute one, which broke his heart. Also, have you seen the play Fiddler on the Roof? This is the Tsar they all spit about. Mm-hmm. This is the Tsar whose agents were pushing Jews out and persecuting them and killing them all over the place. Okay? Fiddler on the Roof. I think you just did a really good job of... There was a lot more to that story, but that's those are the high, the high points for sure, or the low points, actually. Yeah. So no more politics, but I'd like to recommend a podcast called the Russian Rulers Podcast. It'll take you through Mikhail at 16 and 1613 all the way through to modern days, and you can stop and start wherever you want and pick it back up again. But ultimately, the result of all this was that the royal family began to withdraw from society. So from now on, they spent most of their time at the Alexander Palace at Sarsky Silo, 15 miles from the capital. This is a place that they decided would be the best home for their family. Um, it wasn't the biggest palace at 100 rooms, <laughs> but it was the one that they felt the most at home in. And Alexandra had done a, a fine job of Englishifying. Take a two-story center entry colonial house. Mm, let's call it 16 rooms-ish. Put that thing in its entirety, shove it in a corner of Versailles, and that's what you got going. She made this middle class, well, upper middle class, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> she made an upper middle class house in the corner of this very ornate palace. There was chintz and knickknacks and overstuffed chairs and British. She had a bedroom that was all mauve. Like, the walls and the furniture, everything. <laughs> there were so many pictures in there. Your eyes don't know where to go. British. And so here's them all in the country, and society is looking around. What's going on? Well, Uncle Vladimir, the oldest uncle, his wife took over the part of society hostess. She hosted people that we know, like Consuelo Vanderbilt. Know her. Duchess of Marlborough. Elizabeth Drexel, another American. Know her. Ulysses S. Grant's granddaughter Julia had married a Russian, and she was cruising around. See, the Gilded Age heiresses mm -hmm. don't have to stay on the Isle of Wight. No. <laughs> they don't. Sure, they're, right? they're up in here, too. Yep. And when complimented on her entertaining, <laughs> Mrs. Vladimir said, Well, some of us know our duty. Why don't you tell that to the Grand Court at Sarsky Salo? Hmm, like, ouch. Dudes, Henry VIII would have cut off your head. I know. But Nicholas II is hardly Henry VIII, is That's he? true. So let's talk about the girls, shall we? They were growing up largely only in each other's company. Yeah, they were. it was a very serene life. Um, the family was extremely close because they only hung with each other. There, was, there wasn't a lot of socializing going on. Now, Alexei was given a little posse, like a boy-baby <laughs> gang to yeah. run around with, yeah. although they were instructed to be calmer than most boys would be. But Alex thought Russian girls were too gossipy and filled with badness, and she wasn't having it. And she said, well, there's four of them. They can just be together. And they were. I mean, they were very happy to play together and to grow up together, and they were sisters. I don't have a sister. I can only imagine what it's like. Now, Olga, the eldest, was very serious and very studious. She was considered the most intelligent of all the sisters. Mama expected her to be responsible for all the siblings. Sounds familiar. That's the oldest. <laughs> Even bad baby Alexei, who used to lick his plate and throw it at people. What the heck? Anyway, so she was in trouble for him doing that. Sounds familiar, too. Mama Alex. You got some issues you want to yeah. bring up here? Let me just air this. <laughs> Mom, 
I know you're listening. I don't have magic mind powers for the bad baby. Um, Mama Alex and Olga had quite a few clashes. Olga's filters were off, shall we say, and she said what she thought. Here is another podcast connection. Okay. Olga disapproved of all the Queen's behavior in Alice in Wonderland because she said Queen's would never behave that way. <laughs> and she wanted them to stop reading that story. That was crap. They love that. Tatiana, in contrast, seemed to be the natural caretaker. She was the one all the younger siblings called the governess. So maybe she was a hard aleck. She also took great care of her mama as she became more of an invalid, and she was definitely mama's favorite. She looked just like an Alex mini-me, but she, unlike Alex, had this ability to charm people and relate to people Mm -hmm. that her mother just really needed and didn't have. Um, Maria, the third one, was the pretty one. I'm not making this up. The no. pretty one. Don't they tell us not to label? They do, but this was... Anyway, she was. That. I mean, she was. You can pick her out in any of these pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the pretty one. Her eyes were just so big that everyone in the family called them Maria's saucers. Right. Like that actress from Big Love, um, Amanda Seyfried from New Oh, Girls. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they are, like, like beanie baby big. <laughs> They're huge. <laughs> She was not a book girl. Her favorite thing was to sneak and go sit and talk to the officers at the door. Even when she was a little kid, she liked to hang out, find out about their lives. What's going on, dudes? Even when she was a little kid, this isn't necessarily flirting or, like, no. anything. She just was finding more interesting things to do. Maria, however, was often very depressed because she's the third daughter, and I don't think anyone was pretty shy about telling her how very much of a disappointment her birth was. And the older sisters called her a fat bow-wow and wouldn't play with her, which helped a lot, I think. Yeah, probably. Sisters are sisters, no matter how high. So I guess I should be happy that I don't have any. (laughs) Anastasia, the fourth daughter, equally unwanted, frankly, Mm -hmm. handled things completely differently by becoming the comedian. I think lots of youngest children do. Now, Alexei was younger, but really... Yeah, he was like an only child. She's a prankster, and she's really good with conversation. She's up trees all the time. She's like Imogen Threadgood from Fried Green Tomatoes. Seriously. Yeah. She's in everybody's business. She knows how to fish. She doesn't like to wear dresses. She would rather throw snowballs at people, etc. So, Alexei, he was doted on like crazy, but he was really brought up as the male heir. He's not part of the little group. No, not at all. He actually had two sailor nannies that were in charge of keeping him safe. It was their job to make sure that he didn't play too rough, to protect him, to nurse him, to always be there with him. But you see pictures, there's always one, like if he's climbing on the rocks, there's one right behind him ready to catch him. And that's what their job was. I mean, it was a very important state position. To keep the air safe. One of them was a fat guy that looked like Chef Boyardee, (laughs) and he does not look good in a stripey 1910 swimsuit. I'm just telling you right now, he's got a big old fat mustache and a big old fat tummy, and he is in the water because the Zarevich is in the water. Yeah, but sometimes they didn't wear the swimsuits. Did you see those pictures? Oh, yes. There's pictures <laughs> there's of... pictures of the Tsar's fanny underwater. Water Woo! photography. It's so lovely. So, uh... <laughs> so, the sisters were decorative. Okay, they were subjects of photos, newsreels, popular imagination. The fact is, their brother was very fragile, but every single male down every branch of the family tree would have to be dead before the oldest, Olga, would ever go up to the throne. Right. This isn't a Mary Tudor situation at all. So what was life like as a decorative jewel in this family? It wasn't bad. No, they were in a strange <laughs> position, though. They were 
trying to live this cozy private life, and they were constantly surrounded by people all the time, yeah. looking at them. Like an, an attraction, almost. Yes, they were. And they were a very striking one. I mean, that's, again, you said it earlier, that's why this family is in our consciousness, because there's so much out there about them. So let me just quickly read off the people who were at their retreat with them. There was a garrison of 5,000 soldiers at Sarsky Salo. There was also 24-hour security at each and every door. And there was a lot of doors. doors. And this, these are the guys that Maria hung out with. Those yeah. guys. In the middle of the night, they could all have an upholstered armchair, and they were allowed to remove their chin strap in one glove to make themselves comfortable. In the middle of the night, which I thought was funny. It's like, yeah. who thinks of these rules? Seriously. Um, there were 250 plainclothes detectives, and they would fan out. If anybody walked out as soon as the family passed, they would look up in the tree, la, 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 not doing anything. They'd look at the sky. So the family called those guys nature lovers. There were a 100 personal police and then some secret police that nobody knew who or what they were doing. So lots of eyes on them at all times. That's just the security force. The servants and courtiers, don't forget the courtiers, always there with their own servants. But can I please tell you, when no one of rank was at Sarsky Salo, there were still a thousand servants still there doing their jobs. And when the royal family was there, it ballooned up to 6,000 servants. Alex had 240 ladies in her service alone. So as much as Alex and Nikki wanted to pretend they were living the simple life, the machine was all around them. Yeah. There were special doormen. They were called Abyssinian guards. Many had been gifts of the emperor of Ethiopia. The thing is, these were all very tall black men. Um, their whole job was to open the door for the Tsar and the Tsarina on formal occasions and to look exotic. The most famous was a man named Jim Hercules. <laughs> Hercules, Hercules! He was from the South in America, and he would go back for a few months every year on holiday, and he would bring back homemade jelly to give to the little grand duchesses, which I think is so awesome. That's really nice. It's like a hostess gift. It was, it was nice, but how funny that, I mean, but what do you bring the man who has everything? Jelly. There were several men whose entire job it was to change light bulbs. I guess think how big that palace was. That's that's an all-day job. How many Russian servants does it take to change the oh. light bulbs? <laughs> Evidently, lots. Um, how funny. Um, the children had their own staffs of nannies, nurses, maids, governesses, tutors. Their servants were forbidden to talk to the other servants. Interestingly, no gossip was allowed. Although, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's just human nature, but I can see why Alexandra would have instituted that policy. I mean, it was biting her in the fanny every time she turned around for the minute she stepped into the country. That's true. So dinners were very, very formal, even if nobody was coming. They would still dress up, even if it was just the family. The diamonds were in evidence. The rulers had been used to place the dinnerware. Uh But look at this contrast. At 4 o'clock every day, they had, quote, tea. All the children were there. There was a cozy fire. The czar was reading out loud to everyone, probably smoking a cigar, because that's what he did. And, and he had cigarettes, too. He always had <laughs> pictures. You always see him with a cigarette in his hand, so. Yeah, and then Tsarina was pouring the tea herself. All the girls would, you know, work on their needlework if they were knitting or embroidering, whatever it was. And Alexei and sometimes Tomboy Anastasia would battle it out on laying on the floor with tin soldiers. So, like, the formality of their day and then this little hour of peace. Even within this little hour of peace, 
the tea that they had every day was exactly the same. Maybe there'd be some pastries, but usually it was just bread and butter and tea. They could use some of uh, Mama's jelly, too. Yeah. That would make it a little special. But that was not, you'd think, oh, that's from the British part of... No, it was Russian customs established by Catherine the Great to have this particular bread and butter tea. I thought it was funny that Alex kept trying to get some variety yeah. and no one would listen. They're like, this is not how it's done. It is not the custom. A little cucumber sandwich or something. Something, something else. <laughs> um, so you kind of get the idea. This is really how they wanted to live and the rest was kind of a front. I think that they did a really good job of distancing themselves from the time that they had to have the front. Right. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. As a family, I admire them, I would say. I think they did a very good job of building community of their family. The kids all loved one another. They all worshipped and adored Alexei. So it was, you know, it was a nice, tight family unit. Get this. Most Saturday nights, they had movie night. Yes, for real. I know. This, this sounds very modern. The family, of course, had the cozy armchairs in the front, and then there were these scattered hard chairs behind, and then the doorways were just full of servants peeking their heads in, and I'm reminded of Gosford Park, when mm-hmm. the famous movie starts playing, and the servants are, like, listening. Really? This will tell you how rich he was, you know. Yeah. Movie oh, yeah. night every Saturday. Yeah. So they had a newsreel, and then a slideshow of landscapes, which sounds awesome. <laughs> and then, quote, something amusing for the children. Some of the movies, like American serials, they saw What Happened to Mary, and um, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz from 1910. The first one. Those awful hats um, was another show (laughs) where this guy was trying to see at the theater, and these women kept sitting in front of him in big cartwheel hats. Uh Uh-huh. Hijinks. I don't know if that would entertain us, but whoa, that was high comedy. And Romeo and Juliet. These are all silent, so. Um, But one member of court was the censor, and she would literally have a pair of scissors, and if there was a kissing scene, she'd cut it out, (laughs) fling it, tape the crap back together. It was a very intricate editing operation. Yes. She did not have garage band. <laughs> Those four girls were once prevented from performing a play because it had the word stockings in it. So <sighs> if this gives you any idea of the level. <laughs> it's a great idea of the level of sensor. The Clara Bow would have given them a heart attack. Oh, no kidding. Literally, they, they would be dead. Yet, but yeah. No, no. <laughs> there, but there's cer- certainly plenty of women around that would have given them a heart attack. <laughs> Which is probably what Alexandra was trying to keep from them. She was trying to keep them pretty innocent. Mm -hmm. And and she did a mm, scary good job of it. That's right. Because socially, the girls were not... um, Advanced. No. Thank you. I know. It was said that they acted and talked like 10 to 12-year-old girls pretty much the whole time, even when they were grown women. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of creepy. In some regards, I mean, I mean, you want to keep your kids innocent, but you don't want them to be naive and foolish. Right, right. Well, you know, that happens a lot when people are sheltered and they get to college and... Woo! I know, that's right. Well, Olga and Tatiana shared a room, and Maria and Anastasia shared a room in a palace with hundreds of rooms. It just kills me. No, they had to share. All four girls shared a dressing slash bathroom, a so Brady Bunch, <laughs> but yeah. theirs had a solid silver bathtub in it. Well, everything up here was green and pink and white and cheerful, and the three little kids had a huge playroom filled with the most expensive toys you can imagine, sent by all their royal relatives. Um, 
bought by an indulgent papa. Remember, he owned a sixth of the world, so the likes of the posh tots catalog is not going to scare him. <laughs> no, not much. Um, there was an elevator installed from Alexandra's room to the children's room, and I have literally been in one of those 1899 elevators. Mm-hmm. Nuh-uh is what? <laughs> Nuh-uh. I used to work for Anthropology, and their mm-hmm. home office is in an old mansion. It may be the Drexel Mansion, in fact. Second mention of a Drexel in wow. an episode. Um, and that wow. elevator is like being in a dumbwaiter, like uh. a coffin. It is like the sides touch you, and I'm not that big. And it, and it like creaks up all rickety-rackety, and I'm like, I swear no one will find me in here. Good never again, never again. But back then it was high tech. I would take the stairs no matter what. I would have somebody pull me on a rope outside the window before I would ever ride it again. Um so there was one ominous item in this middle-class enclave in the palace. Hanging on the wall was a tapestry copy of the painting of Marie Antoinette and her children. Superstitious people should not put omens in their house. No. This family, like the family of Marie Antoinette, seemed to have absolutely no idea of money. Their rooms were simple. Oh, yes, in contrast to the rest of the palace. But there were Fabergé eggs in that cabinet in the corner. Can we talk about Fabergé eggs for just a second? Absolutely. Um, because we've all seen them, and they're just, they're so fascinating, and it was a tradition. Um, it was actually started by Alexander III, Papa Tsar. had started it and gave one to Marie. It was an Easter egg with a surprise inside, usually encrusted with jewels. I'm sure we've all seen them. We'll link you up to where you can see even more. But Nicholas liked the tradition, so... Every year at Easter, there was another Fabergé egg created. Peter Carl Fabergé was the jeweler who created these, and he employed 500 craftsmen who produced not just the Fabergé eggs, but he was a jeweler to the family. If you're going to be a jeweler, be in Russia, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you would like to print money. Yeah, he well, and he yeah, and, and he did very well. He is, you know, he did escape to Switzerland at the end, which was good, and um, he left, you know, obviously as a re- result of what we're going to talk about later. But his legacy lives on, that's for sure. And these fabulous eggs, the birth of the children or something, they were all commemorated with these special eggs that always had some kind of special treat inside a portrait or a little baby carriage or something. It's just. Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, these girls also might be dressed in all the same white little garment. And they may all be dressed in simple white muslin, but other girls did not receive a regiment of the army on their 14th birthday. <laughs> no, I don't think very many did. No. Uh, incidentally, Tatiana's regimentals are quite attractive. Olga did not come out so well. <laughs> Everyone indulged in photography, and thank goodness they did. They left 150,000 photos, most of which are snapshots Mm -hmm. of the family. Of the family. He was rich enough to, like, employ people to do nothing but develop and print film. And the family loved nothing more than to sit there like super nerds, which Mm -hmm. I love, Mm -hmm. and paste photos into their albums. Oh, they did. All of them did it. All the kids had their own cameras. They took their pictures. Sometimes they processed them as well, which was educational. I do not know Mm -hmm. if this is true. But Anastasia may have been the first person to do the Facebook, I'm looking in the mirror with my camera, <laughs> taking a picture of myself. Uh, there is a photo of her doing that, that pioneering spirits. Had she only known how famous that move would become, 
So there are lots of candidates, and I think it's the way that these photos are able to not be so posed, which mm-hmm. kind of makes us love them more, because you can see your kids sticking your, their tongue out or making a funny face or acting like a cook or pretending to fall or mm-hmm. poking their sister. or Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. a lot of pictures. Yeah, and just laying in the hay. It's, and, and Papa, you know, hanging out. Yeah. No. Not stiff in his official gear. They never really got Alex smiling, which is pretty telling. Yeah, it was. She kind of was spiraling. And physically, she was experiencing a great deal of physical ailments that would really slow her down. She couldn't stand for long periods of time. She couldn't walk. She was involved in the mysticism, as we already talked about. Um, She looks very dark in all the pictures. Her eyes are just very concerned and she was often very bedridden by this time, suffering from heart palpitations, fatigue, headaches, her old leg pains, which we understand why those happen. Mm-hmm. All of this, though, the unkind Russians attributed to hypochondria, or as it was called, hysteria. But honestly, it might have been a serious illness called porphyria, another lovely genetic gift from Queen Victoria. <laughs> And Alexei was often too weak or recovering from an illness to go hiking, so the Tsar and his daughter spent a lot of time together while the two invalids kind of chilled on the chaise lounge and read books Books and hung out together. So let's take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk about how did you get places. Have you been to thehistorychicks.com lately? We've put our favorite books from seasons one through three in a little feature we like to call the carousel. It's on the right side of our homepage. Give it a spin, and if you feel inspired to click through and purchase, Amazon.com will throw us some cash. Thanks to Amazon.com, and a special thanks to you, all of our friends, for listening. Part of the structure that the family had every year, they would travel. It was just what they did. They were they spent part of the year in Saint Petersburg, and then they would see go to their other palaces and their other homes for the other part of the year. Sometimes they traveled by imperial train, and this is an extremely lavish train. It was like taking their home and putting it on the rails. Not only did they have that train, they had an identical decoy train so that terrorists didn't know which one actually held the imperial family. Anytime they wanted to go somewhere on the train, they had scouts go out ahead of time down the entire route looking for problems, and then they would come back. And that was a fact of life for these people. They were they were assassins that wanted them. There was rumors of assassinations their entire life. It was just a fact. It was like, someone's going to try and kill us. <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking about, wow, that's crazy. But, you know, our president, yeah. no matter who he is, has extensive security in that way. So For the rest of his life. It's not a commentary necessarily on their character. It's just a fact of life in a society where there's dissension, I think. Yeah. There was one place where the word simple could have been said without an eye roll, maybe. <laughs> if you can get past the fact that it was the yacht... It had 275 staff and a mahogany interior, but... And only 420 feet long. Yeah. 
Well, okay, so if you can get past that kind of thing, the formality was really ramped way down. There were 17 officers on board, and with these men and these men alone, the family really enjoyed great familiarity. All, I mean, imagine all the girls in white dresses, kind of perched up on boxes, talking and flirting with those officers, Anastasia playing pranks Mm -hmm. on them, the czar sitting on a bench smoking cigars with his dudes, exchanging stories. They used to all go to this hidden cove and have picnics and a day in the water or play tennis, just being. It was really low-key. I think Olga kind of had a crush on one of these officers. She wrote his name in her journal. (laughs) Mm. But you know what? I think her mother must have read her journal because that officer was encouraged to find a wife soon, please. And he did. They grew up on this boat. You can see pictures of them as very young children and then later as teens on the same ship. So it was just part of their annual procession, even though they weren't really that much a part of the society scene in St. Petersburg. Every year in March when the season ended and the town turned back into the swamp that it was, (laughs) they got out of town. And once a year they would head up to Poland to a place called Spala. And this is their hunting lodge. They went there once a year. It was very rustic. It was not a favorite place of Alexandra at all. Even though she was pretty simple, it was it was pretty tough. And then one year, poor Alexei had a terrible episode there with bleeding. They actually thought that they were going to lose him. Rasputin, because he was such a polarizing figure, he was sent back to Siberia. But he had a word that Alexei was sick, and he telegraphed and said he'll be fine just don't let the doctors touch him and the next day he was so you can see why alexandra had belief in his abilities yeah i can see that i can also see if you think someone has helped your child they occupy a place in your heart Mm -hmm. that people aren't going to dislodge very easily Mm -mm. unless you've experienced that i imagine that people would have a hard time Understanding. I mean, Rasputin was a kook. I mean, there's no way around that. Yeah. But, you know, even kooks could play the odds or maybe have a little skill. And there is a gratitude that is really, oh, I mean, you're not going to take it away from her. Yeah. Oh, I had three babies, and all three of my babies went to NICU, and two of them were transported to children's hospitals, and I can still remember their doctors. And if I see them today, I still thank them. So, yeah, absolutely. And that's how she felt about Rasputin. So back... To society, from our assorted hunting lodges, Miss Olga came out at 16, just like her mama, but to greater reclaim, Olga's introduction into Russian society went much better than Alexandra's. The next year, Tatiana was out, too. You know, they really were virtual strangers uh-huh. to society. They hadn't been out. So lucky Olga and Tatiana that season. It was the last real social season in Russia. Balls were held for them by mama and grandma and other relatives. I mean... These sheltered people routinely stayed up till 5 o'clock. Olga had a couple of marriage prospects because that's what happens when you come out into society. Though I read that the Romanov girls were kind of not viewed as good marriage prospects because they might be carriers for hemophilia. So if you don't want that in your bloodline, don't shop there. Yeah. But Prince Christopher of Greece was so taken with her that he fortified himself with liquid courage and went to ask the Tsar for her hand. Niet. But Niet with a pat on the head. Prince Carol of Romania was tossed in the ring, and Olga said no. But no one would be able to bother with this kind of thing for long because Europe was at war by mid-year. Completely. Yeah, the World War I had broken out, and uh, unfortunately it was a war of Russia against Germany. 
So anyone that was in Russia that was of German descent was not exactly looked upon with favor. Now, who would that be? Hmm. Alexandra. Well, all four girls and their mother took Red Cross training, which was good. And somebody said to Alexandra, aren't you afraid of your children touching people in the last stages of illness? And Alexandra famously answered back, I don't think it will hurt the children, but I know the patients would be hurt if the girls are afraid to touch them. I think this was the only period of time where Alexandra really stepped up to the plate. She put a lot of energy, all the, the fainting spells and the weakness seemed to almost disappear in favor of opening up hospitals in their palaces, taking the Red Cross training, being hands-on nurses. I mean, not just walking around, keeping mm -hmm. their uniforms clean and white and pristine. They were right there. And Olga complained that people were keeping the harder cases from her, and she wanted to be involved. Don't shield me. I want to be on the harder cases. Even the younger girls became patronesses of a smaller officer's hospital, and they were there, you know, handing out candy from their pockets and talking and just make, going around and doing everything that they could to help the war effort. So this isn't actually a good time for the family as far as being with the people. Well, and she was allowed actually to do something nice. Now, when she first came, we forgot to mention this, but when she first came, she had thought about getting some charities together. Uh, women of privilege could help the less fortunate and perhaps a school of handiwork or whatever. And ladies joined up with the thought that the payback would be titles, lands, jewels. And when Alex was confused, saying, no, this is not a payback. This is a helping of the poor. They all dropped out like, mm -hmm. you are naive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was making crocheted scarves and things. She thought she could hand those out and that if someone of society could just make two or three scarves a year, that would do so much. But they're like, oh, no, there's nothing in it for me. Well, yeah, and so she was a little disillusioned by that hard attitude. So this was a good opportunity for her to finally use the skills she'd learned from her mother, going around to help the poor and mm -hmm. the sick. Absolutely. Hooray. And then actually to commemorate the whole thing, there was a Fabergé egg created with the pictures of all the family members who were nurses in the Red Cross. In the Red Cross. So, Alex, the war was not going... Mm, awesomely. And Alex convinced Nikki to take charge personally of the Russian troops. Okay, we know what confidence he inspires. I think he was received with dismay, but she pushed him to be firm and brave, like Peter the Great, she said. And she gave him a magic comb so he'd be invincible. <laughs> she told him to listen. I know. I know. That's how it is. I know. She told him to listen to what she said and thump the table, she said. Be forceful. Uh, he doesn't have the force in him, and any losses that the armies receive are now on his shoulders. It's bad and the PR. losses were great. Yeah. Alex was technically in charge when he was gone, although everyone assumed that with him away, Rasputin was really in charge, because here he was, still lurking around. Yeah. The power that that man had, and he wielded it. I mean, he used it sometimes to further people along and grant favors. He was kind of in the middle of a whole web of corruption. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that he was making po the political decisions that everyone attributed to him, but he was influencing appointments, mm -hmm. uh, etc. So in that way, he really was controlling a lot of the machine. Inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Inappropriate. Well, Alex began to take Veronal, which is a heart drug, and opium, which really <laughs> helped a lot with the direct thinking, I think. 
The rumors went crazy that Rasputin was sharing her bed, but there is no evidence of that. None. None. Someone finally murdered him, sick of his crap. Not exactly a well-executed plan, because it took quite a few attempts. They tried to poison him and shoot him and stab him, and eventually he died, but it was... It took a while. Now, quite telling is the news got out and there was great rejoicing in the streets. That's really sad. And someone dies and everyone cheers. The war was going so, so, so badly for Russia. And 15 million able-bodied farm workers were gone from the supply chain. The food was very scarce. And people had had it with starving. How dare they? And being under boot heels and, you know, really just all hell broke loose in Petrograd. All hell broke loose. Just kind of all of a sudden, the groundswell came, and everyone was just fed up. You know, you can't see your children starve. You can't see just people not paying attention to your strife and Mm -hmm. letting this go Mm -hmm. on for so long. Soldiers and police ended up shooting each other because the rank-and-file soldiers would actually shoot their officers rather than civilians. They were told to fire on unarmed civilians, and they're like, you know what? Mm, No, I'll shoot you. Mutiny. The servants at Sarsky Salo started to melt away. The garrison of troops, the 5,000 men that were garrisoned at Sarsky Salo, mutinied and surrounded the palace. That's not good. And we still have another layer. The palace guard did stay loyal, but there were so very, very many angry soldiers outside. And all the children were deathly ill. I mean, Tatiana was so ill. It was measles. Measles. But, you know, Mm -hmm. it had gone into her ears. Tatiana couldn't hear Maria was the worst. She had pneumonia. She was near death. Maria almost died. Mm-hmm. How horrible is that? Her husband's not home. Nope. She's surrounded by hostile, crazy guys. She's hopped up on opium. She's hopped up on <laughs> opium or hopped down. I don't oh, know. yeah, whichever way it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess if you're going to have to be stressed out, maybe that's the best way to be. Yeah, I suppose I don't so. Really know. And then the news came that the czar had abdicated. Not only abdicated, I resigned, but he had abdicated that his son also resigned, and he had given the throne to his brother, Michael, who looked at the great picture and said, you know, mm, I'll go ahead and resign, too, because he's no fool. So the throne that had been held by Romanovs for 300 years was empty, and that was freaking people out. You don't notice how much you kind of relied on something being mm-hmm. there until it is suddenly just gone. It is gone. Alex went to her children's schoolroom and just cried and cried all by herself. It was... It was a motorcycle. (laughs) The revolutionaries rolled in. All the doors were sealed up and guarded, and their haven, Sarsky Salo, was now their prison. They were under house arrest, and Nicholas came back, so the whole family was together, which for them was very good. Nicholas foolishly thought that perhaps he could have dreams of almost a retirement type situation he he said that he would had his life's desire was to keep a farm maybe in england yeah and you know they assumed that england or denmark his mom's country or some family member somewhere in a royal house would take them in and it was a blow you know of course we lost the throne but you know we have plenty of money It's fine, we'll set up shop in another country somewhere. But little did they know, people really weren't willing to take them in. They were kind of afraid that if they brought these people into their country, the leftist movements in their own countries would blow up. Mm -hmm. And it was like they didn't really want this magnet coming in. Hot potato family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was a bummer. They were alone, really, except they weren't. Those rough guards kind of just walked in wherever they felt like. They watched Alexandra dress 
in fact. Mm -hmm. Not cool. No. They wouldn't let people shut the door to go to the bathroom. The parents were kind of terrified that the off-color insults and comments, which, what the heck? Those girls had never heard such a thing in their whole life. And here these beautiful teenage daughters were and these rough soldiers. The parents were terrified that these insults and comments were going to escalate into something more sinister, some attacks. And so they were kind of at pains to pacify their captors at all times and not anger them. Although Maria once famously yelled at them and said that they needed to have some decorum and not talk to them in that way. Tatiana was going to let it go because it was they yelled at Tatiana some like, hey, nice hooters or some kind yeah. of crazy thing. And Maria lost her crap. Maria, the calm, pretty one. But she'd been used to soldiers. Maybe she was feeling like she could... Talk to them in their own language, but she talked him down by yelling at him. Good for her, Maria. Yay. High five to you. Unfortunately, it was one minor victory in a, a huge battle. Mm-hmm. Not good. So the provisional government, which took over after the Tsar's gone, moved them to a country house to keep them out of the hands of the Bolsheviks, the radicals. And they were far from the unrest in the city. They went to Tobolsk, which is in the far east. And ruddy money was a problem. Really, the family was reduced to accepting donations of food and cash from loyal friends, really, just to survive. Yeah. Oh, how far down we've come. This house in Tobolsk became the focus of loyalists. Anyone loyal to the royal family would kind of migrate here. I'll give you some money. Here's some stuff. I'll get a letter out to so-and-so. To the provisional government, that's kind of bad. You have this concentration of royalists in one area. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're going to move these people away. And so the family kind of terrifyingly was split up. Okay, imagine this. Yeah. How scary is that? Alexei was too injured, and he couldn't go. So Nikki, Alex, and curiously, Maria, I don't know why. Why did they choose Maria? That's always, I never knew why they took Maria, of all the kids. I know why they left Tatiana to take care of her brother, because she's right. the nurse. She's right. the level-headed right. one. Olga's the oldest. Right. Maybe, well, process of elimination. Maybe they thought that Maria would mouth off to the wrong people <laughs> while Mom and Dad weren't there. Okay, that's a very good point, because she was the only one that really stood up. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> okay. No, it's a really good theory. Yeah. So, uh, Nikki, Alex, and Maria went off with the authorities to a house in Ekaterinburg. They are dropping down in stature and class. I mean, they were in the palace, and then they were in the governor's house, and now they're in this really barren house. It's... The toilets don't work very well. It's cold, and they had, they're had they chopping their own wood, and they're allowed to go outside and exercise in the yard, and that's it. You know, no more long walks and swims like they had had the mm-hmm. opportunity of having before. No, it's just sparse living for a family that is not used to sparse. So back in the governor's mansion, the three remaining girls had been told to, quote, pack the medicines carefully, and they seemed to know what that was. It was a code, and they had carefully sewn fortunes in jewels into these corsets. It was They called them brassieres, but they're really corsets. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They had yeah. two layers. They wore two of them, and the whole center, if you can imagine, the whole entire center was stuffed with loose jewels, jewelry, tightly sewn down so it wouldn't clink. Right. I'm sure it was way comfortable (laughs) Uh, for safekeeping. And sure enough, that was good because their luggage was searched, their pockets were ransacked, but no one's going to feel the corsets, I don't think. No, they weren't being not TSA agents frisking them down. Yeah, why do we put up with that now? (laughs) Dang. So the family was together again, um, but for them to go outside, the windows were actually painted over 
Yeah. At some point. So, man, this is getting worse and worse. It was decided that a permanent solution must be found for this royal family. No more of this hidey-hole business, this moving people around. This was just a waste of energy. What are we doing? And so, on July 16th, they were awakened at midnight and told, there's violence in the town and, and we need to move you to the basement for safekeeping. Fair enough. Who's going to complain about that? Sure, they'd been moved before. Violence coming. Let's go to the basement. Everyone threw their clothes on and kind of stumbled downstairs. Everybody's yawning. They've all brought their little pillows. Um, Alexei so they, had to be carried downstairs by Nicholas because he was his legs were not working properly because of a bleeding situation. Now, here's the short version. Here's the PG version, if you've got children in the room. The short version is no one came out of that basement alive. We're going to go a little further, so if you have disturbable people with you that don't want to hear this, you might want to turn it off at this point, because we're just going to go a little bit further into detail. Go ahead, like five minutes. Yeah. So the family was lined up as if for a photograph. Um, You here, yes, now you here, thank you. I need you in the back row, over to the right. What the heck? What the heck was that? The commandant then brought in this rehearsed squad of gunmen, all of who had been told who they were to shoot, and where they were going to be standing. Thus, the photographic posing. Mm -hmm. And he said, In view of the fact that your relatives have continued their attack on Soviet Russia, the executive committee has decided that you are to be executed. And the czar said, What? And then everyone opened fire. That's how fast it was. There were strange ricochets everywhere. What is going on? And three of the daughters were still alive. In fact, Olga and Tatiana were screaming for their mother, holding Mm -hmm. each other in the back of the room. All these jewels in Olga, Tatiana, and Anastasia's corsets acted as some kind of bulletproof vest. Maria had been killed instantly because, remember, she didn't have one of these corsets on. She came with Mama and Papa. So she had not done that, so she died instantly, and the others, I have to say, suffered death by either bayonets or they were shot in the back of the head. And even the bayonets didn't penetrate the corsets. Right. They were still, and the guards were saying the wrong kids' names, and it was, it was not pretty. It was chaos. At one point, the guards um, and the gunmen had to leave the room. There was too much dust to let it settle, so leaving people in there alive, and mm-hmm. then they went back in and killed them. It was a bad, bad scene. The bodies were all removed in secret. For years, rumors swirled that one or more members of the family had escaped. And so, imposters abounded. All over Russia, all over America, a heavy concentration of imposters in Brussels, all of whom had different stories about how they'd escaped and where they'd gone and blah, blah, blah. The two most famous ones are both Anastasia's. Mm-hmm. One is Eugenia Smith, who actually passed the lie detector test in 1963. Hmm. But the most famous claimant of all was a woman named Anna Anderson. In 1920, now we're still, we're ahead just a couple years, a woman jumped off of a bridge in Berlin. And they fished her out of the water and they took her to a mental hospital where she refused to tell anyone who she was. Uh, 18 months later, 18 months later, she finally claimed to be Anastasia. Um, she said that the instruments that they used to kill them were so blunt that it didn't kill her, that she was rescued by a soldier and taken to Romania. She had a very plausible story. She had scars that were consistent with the type of wounds it would have suffered 
under the the execution of the family. She had the same foot deformity. It's not a rare one. It's bunions. I mean, people have bunions, but so did Anastasia, and so did Anna Anderson. What are the chances of that? And she had, they compared the ear of photographs of Anastasia to the ear of Anna Anderson, and there were 17 points of similarity. She had a credible story. And I can see why someone would believe her before the onset of DNA. In fact, right. I read a book in which the man started out writing Anna Anderson, Anna Anderson, and about halfway through, he, with no fanfare, just switches to Anastasia, where you can tell that's the point where he believes her story mm-hmm. has been proven. Right. And he refers to her, the rest of the book, as Anastasia. She was able to convince enough people that it was possible that she was who she said she was, and she was released from the hospital. She lived off the generosity of supporters, and quite possibly they were feeding her information as well to support her claim. They'd give her little stories that came down from people who worked in the palace. So was she or wasn't she? Didn't know. At one point, she actually went to court in Germany to prove her identity. And incidentally, to claim whatever money there was, right. uh, Romanov fortunes were reputed to be in German banks, Banks all over Europe. Not sure if the Romanoff money has ever come to light, really. Hmm. Still were well, of the day. Yeah, there was, I mean, there's quite a few years where things that happened in Russia were not actually leaked out of Russia. That's true. So, when she did die of pneumonia in 1984, she asked that her body be cremated, probably because she didn't want any DNA testing done. But there had been surgery done in the past, and they were able to do... DNA testing, and they proved that she was not Anastasia, but a Polish factory worker, and that her injuries had been suffered in an explosion in the factory that she worked in. Crazy. Crazy indeed. So, in 1991, some bodies were found. Now, it had been claimed they'd been found years and years before, but the government of Russia being what it was, the people that discovered that decided to just keep it mum until a more favorable government was in place. So, in 1993, there were nine bodies, five of which were found to be Romanovs by DNA, and they were the Tsar, the Tsarina, and three of the daughters, the two big ones and one of the smaller ones, so either Marie or Anastasia. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the smaller daughters and the son were missing. Hmm, that lent credence to some of the Anastasias and some of the claims that they had been released or had escaped. But in 2007, the last two skeletons were found and identified, so no one survived in that basement. As much as we wanted them to, um, none of them made it. They didn't. So this story starts in 1613. It doesn't end until 2007. This whole family, they just led strange lives. I don't... Strange. Not relatable, except the way that the family interacted, I think, as a family unit. That's the only thing that I could relate to at all. In the children's case, at least the girls, they were completely oblivious, which was probably good, and had the revolution not come, they would have made fine wives and mothers Mm -hmm. to royals and brought up royal children of their own. Maria, in particular, wanted nothing more than to get married and have a large family of children. That was her dream. She may have been able to achieve it had she lived. But Mama, Papa, and Alexei suffered for years, years, years. Their lives were not good. No. So this was, wow, was this a journey? We did a lot of background for this, too. We sure did. And this, um, we should have said at the beginning, this is the result of the guaranteed content poll. This was your selection. So let's talk about the media. There's movies. I watched three of them. There's 
two movies called Anastasia because that was the, the big story that walked away from this, the mystery of Anastasia. One was the animated Anastasia. So I wanted to know if any ground had been broken on this particular movie. It was made in 1997. If you watch the movie, have you, did you see it? Mm-hmm. You know how like the crown is actually sparkling? It's computer generated. And the trees, they look like real trees. There's computer generated animation within the story. But it, it had already been done during Little Mermaid previously. So, but the cast of this movie, there's Meg Ryan, there's... Um, John Cusack, Christopher Lloyd, Bernadette Peters, Angela Lansbury, Hank Azaria, and Kirsten Dunst. That's a that's a star-studded that's a, cast. That's a star-studded <laughs> cast. Um, it's kind of um, and Rasputin looks like Rasputin. It's the whole thing is that Rasputin put a curse on the Romanov family. Yeah, it takes a little more liberties than the movie yeah. nineteen what fifty six. The nineteen fifty six Ingrid Bergman Yul Brenner movie Anastasia. Now, in that movie, the overarching, well, kind of both of these, the overarching theme of both of these is that tricksters with ties to the Russian nobility and knowledge pick some random homeless person to have her act as if she were Anastasia. But it turns out that perhaps this person actually is Anastasia in an ironic twist. Right. And in both of the stories, the grandmother, who was exiled and she was in Paris proves that it is indeed Anastasia but in real life Anna Anderson never met Dowager Empress Maria hmm. ever in 1971 there is another movie it's called Nicholas and Alexandra and it's based on the Robert Massey book and it's based pretty close and I would say that a lot of movies including this one take some liberties <laughs> but this one actually does a really good job well first off the actor that they have to play Rasputin looks just like him crazy you know, creep you out um, they do a really good job of showing the rise of Lenin and socialism and the Bolsheviks um, they, they, they did do a good job of showing that they the sets and I even though the movie was made in 1971 the sets and the costuming has held up and it's it's very elaborate and um, it's, I think the thing that struck me the most about this movie, now besides the time, it's three hours long. What? I know. Um, there's, it shows such a stark contrast between the lifestyle of the royalty and the peasants and commoners. Just black and white almost. They, they didn't do that, but it's almost there. The lavishness versus the, the poverty. So I think that, that was good if you have three hours to spare. Now, to go along with that, there is a book that is so neat. It is called Before the Revolution, A View of Russia Under the Last Tsar. And it shows not necessarily always pictures of the well-to-do. There's a lot of pictures of peasants in here. There are pictures of society ladies, but there's also pictures of soldiers, of the men who had the responsibility for breaking the ice. I mean, it is really neat. It's um just the dawn of kind of casual photography. Right. So you were able to get a lot more neat pictures rather than cabinet photos. Right. We would be remiss if we did not point you in the direction of the most active historical forum that I have ever seen. Well, short of the Lizzie Borden. I'll give it that. Lizzie Borden's pretty active. Lizzie Borden was pretty active. But alexanderpalace.org is your one-stop shop for all things Romanoff. It is. There's pictures, links, detailed stories, photographs of... Fabergé eggs, a very active message board, and a 
Palace Pictorial Tour. Well, there's also another website. It's sponsored by Royal Russia, which I believe is a magazine. I'm not sure. But they also have pictures galore and videos. And some of them are in Russian and some of them are in French. But as a collection, they have quite a bit there as well. There, I mean, we are just touching the tip of the iceberg on things out there that are associated with the Romanov family, with the Romanov dynasty, with Russian history. I mean, there's so many ways you could fork off on this. Fork off? Spin off? We call it going down a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. where we're doing research and we're like, ooh, this and that. And we just like take off on another tangent. We really had a hard time reining ourselves in on this one. <laughs> it's good. Well, um, we've got stacks and stacks and stacks of books here. And rather than read them all, I'll do, let's call it my two favorites. Okay. And let Susan do her two favorites. And then we will post the rest just in a list form. Hold on while I pick mine up. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. She's saying I bent my book. <laughs> and you should see my book. <laughs> Alright. So my ultimate favorite, which I think is quite awesome, is called The Court of the Last Tsar, Pomp, Power, and Pageantry in the Reign of Nicholas II by Greg King. And it is full of pictures. It's full of asides. It's well researched. It's well organized. It's easy to read and it's not too stuffy. So that's good. Because some of these some of the academic works get yes. very into the detail of the battles and the blah, blah, blah. So this was a good overview. And then there is a biography of Alexander called Alexandra, the Last Tsarina by Carolee Erickson. So it is very good, too. It's, she's a very good biographer, I think, and um, gave a lot of insight into the personality of the Empress herself. Cool. Now, if you like letters, which I do... There is a lifelong passion, Nicholas and Alexander, their own story, and it's their letters. And, I mean, this thing is uh, 700 pages. Yeah, people that like to read primary sources will love this book. It's not just them, either. It's his sister, Xenia, Mm -hmm. which that name needs to come back. It does. His sister, Xenia, um, Queen Victoria's letters are in Mm -hmm. here. It's just basically moving the story forward through everybody's letters. It's neat. It's very neat. If If you like to do... Read letters. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's there. Um, there's also another, it's a coffee table book, The Lost World of Nicholas and Alexandra, and it is huge, a huge book, and it is just chock full of pictures as well as um, copy. I mean, there's right there's the story in there, but, I mean, pictures, pictures, pictures. There's a fold-out of Alexandra Palace. I mean, it's just, it's cool. And there are books of photographs taken by the family. There are any number of other aspects of this family's life that have been investigated in great detail. And so we'll put a lot of links for this episode because there are so many things out there. And obviously you all wanted information, and there's information out there to be gotten. We just can't contain it all in even two episodes, which is kind of interesting. And there is a book, a young adult book, that I wanted to like. I wanted to like it, but I am not the target audience. So, let me just send this out here. The librarians had featured it. It's a New York Public Library, you know, featured selection, etc. So, the fact that I didn't like it, you know, I'm not the queen or the Tsarina. So, let me give it to you. The Curse of the Romanovs by Staten Rabin, R-A-B-I-N, and it is um, a science fiction telling of what would happen if a girl from now went back and cured Alexei of his hemophilia during time travel. That sounds really good, I'll tell you. 
So I just I couldn't leave you without that. I mean, I just uh, you know I don't care for it, but it's it's gotten some good reviews. So there you go. I did want to mention because my friend Debbie, when she I she asked who we were covering next, and I told her she's like, oh, you have to talk about the Fraser episode. Okay. There's a there was an episode. It's called "The Czar is Born," and they watch the Antiques Road Show, and they end up taking a clock that they had to the Antiques Road Show, and it turns out that it's an heirloom of the Romanov family, and so they think they're related to royalty, but it, not really because it was stolen by a scullery maid. I mean, it's all fabricated, obviously, oh. but the whole episode's on. Um, on YouTube, and you can watch it, and it does introduce you to the veneer drinking game of Antiques Roadshow, and every time they use the word veneer, you take, take a drink. Take a drink. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. That was a long, involved story, and it didn't have a good ending. I'm yeah. very sorry about that. Sometimes they just don't. With this, our guaranteed content episode, we also finish up season three. Done. Oh, my gosh. It took forever. <laughs> This one was particularly hard to get to, to record. It was. Oh. This, oh. <laughs> Weeks in the making. It was. <laughs> it was. So thanks for your patience, really. Thank you for your patience. We uh, we put our heads down. We had notes. We had things. And then we just didn't have time. The right schedule. No. And illnesses and kid things and work things. And we tried. <laughs> but sometimes it just doesn't work. So anyway, thank you for being patient. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you for Season 4. Bye! For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks, with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you liked us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com.
知